I think one of the hardest parts about this season uh, that we're all going through is that for those of us who are used to routines, we feel completely off kilter. Uh, I'm a creature of habit. I'm a creature of routine. And so I flourish when I can have some sense of consistent rhythm. And this season for many of us includes discomfort and the unsettling of our rhythms. There were things that were just a part of everyday life that gave us some sense of rootedness and groundedness and uh, saneness that we don't have during this time. I know that there are many of you that have not been able to exercise and work out the way that you used to. You're, you're missing the opportunity to go to the gym and to use all of the resources that are there. And I've seen some really creative ways people are staying healthy, staying sane, staying fit during this time. Um, And it's been awesome to see that. And I'm grateful that we live in a place where because of the restrictions or the lack thereof here, we can go outside and exercise and get fresh air um, and also stay fit. But it's, it's some things that we're missing. And I can tell you that I'm missing my gym. For the last few years, I've been using apps on my phone to help motivate me and direct my exercises. But there's lots of tools that are present at the gym that aren't present in my living room. And so I've been trying to figure out how do I stay creative? How do I stay healthy? In some ways, how do I stay sane? And if you're somebody who's dove into this world of uh, fitness apps and workout videos, then I can almost guarantee that you've had an experience that I've had. And that's at some point in the video, at some point in the workout, you decide that you want to kill the person leading the, the exercise. In almost every one of my workouts, I, I may be a fan of this person in the beginning. Oh, I always enjoy their workouts. But, but then there comes a certain point in the workout where I decide they are way too peppy. They are way too happy. And I'm going to kill them. Like, I'm just, I'm going to kill them. This is just too much. And, and, and inevitably, in all of my workouts, there comes a point in the workout well, here's, here's how I would summarize it. Where I'm done before the workout is over. Like the workout, I can still see that little chart at the bottom or I can see the timer in the corner and I realize I may have five, seven, nine minutes to go. I'm doing one workout right now where there's six rounds and I, I may be in the fourth round and I know I have two more workouts, rounds to go. Okay, I, I know I am not done. Or the workout is not done, but I'm sure feeling done. They are not ready to finish what they're leading me through, but I am ready to stop participating. And uh, if you've ever had one of those moments, you know, I see those virtual hands right now. And I've been thinking about this experience that I've been having in my workouts because I think it is so descriptive of the experience that many of us are having right now. There are many of us that you could take the word workout over and you could put the word uh, virus and put that in its place. You could remove the word workout and you could put the word uh, stay at home. You could pull the word workout out and you could put the word um, quarantine. You could put the word unemployment. You could put the word anxiety. And there are many of us that we are done before the thing that we're in the middle of is over. And as I've been reflecting over the last couple weeks, as I'm having this experience again and again in my exercises, I've been feeling like God has been speaking to me about the larger experience that I'm in and the larger experience that you're in. And the question that keeps coming to mind for me that I want to share with you this morning is this. 
What if we say, I'm done with this, when God's not done with us? What if we say, God, I am so done with coronavirus. I am so done with COVID-19. I am so done with homeschooling my kids. I am so done with this this season. I'm just so done. I'm so over it. What if we say that when God is not actually done with us? And what if we miss out on what God is doing because we're done before he is? That's the question that we're going to talk about today as we continue our series called Unsinkable. Over these weeks in April and May, for five weeks, we're in the middle of this series, week three. These five weeks in this series called Unsinkable, we're talking about how do we navigate epic storms? How do we make our way through the unexpected storms and trials and challenges of life? And we've been using the story of Noah from the beginning of the Bible as a, as a model, as, as somebody to look to, as somebody to learn from, as somebody who experienced God in a very real way in the middle of his storm, we're, we're looking to see, okay, what can we learn about how we navigate our own storms? And if you're just getting with us for this week in the series, if you're watching on YouTube, all of those messages are there. If you're watching our website or Facebook, you can go to our website, prescottcornerstone.com and look under the sermons tab and you can get caught up later today. You can kind of binge the rest of the series. But today, as we start in week three, The central idea that we're going to talk about, the central principle we're going to explore is this, that we need to be prepared for a moment when you're done before God is finished. Today, I want to encourage you and help you to be prepared for a moment when you're, quote, done before God is finished. And I want to encourage you today that if you're feeling done, if you're feeling over it, if you're feeling frustrated and discouraged, this particular section of Noah's story is for you. And this message may be the most relevant and needed message of this entire series for you. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up to Genesis chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be there today. If you uh, are new to the Bible, that's awesome. I'm so glad that you are here today. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. It's very hard to miss. And in Genesis 8, we're going to pick up the story of Noah. Noah's story covers chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 in Genesis. And we're, as I said, in the middle of it. And today, from this part of Noah's story, we're going to gain four insights to help us get prepared for a moment when we're done before God's Finished. And here's where we're going to jump in today, Genesis 8, verse 1. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. And the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the water receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. Now, I know abated is not a word that you typically use. What it means is that it had lessened or was diminishing. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. It was beginning to, to, to recede. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The first thing that we need to know to get prepared for a moment when we're done before God is finished is we need to remember or recognize that God is merciful and he offers his people relief. God is merciful 
and he offers his people relief. Noah has been free-floating along with his wife and his sons and their wives in the ark with all of the animals for a very long time. And Genesis 8, 1 to 4 tells us that eventually God, in essence, parks the ark on top of a mountain. And that has got to be a really good feeling. Sometimes you take a really long road trip or you go for a really long drive and you're like, am I ever going to get there? And you finally pull up and you put the car in park and it's like, we've arrived. That's got to be a little bit of what Noah and his family felt like when God finally parked the ark on those mountains. But it wasn't just that, that they finally got a moment where they were stopped. It's what that represented And in Genesis 8, 1, this is what the text says. It says, but God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. For those of you that are feeling done, even though God's not finished, one of the things you're going to be tempted to believe in the middle of your storm is that God has forgotten you. That God's forgotten what you're going through. That God's forgotten how difficult it is. That God's forgotten how, how done you are, how over it you are, how frustrated and discouraged, how little you feel like you have left in the tank. And the promise from this passage is that while Noah was struggling and waiting and enduring his storm, God remembered Noah. And that was the beginning of Noah experiencing the mercy of God and the relief of God. And I just think there's some of you right now who need to hear those words. God remembered Noah. And I wonder if you might do me a favor, if you're taking notes to personalize this a little bit. I wonder if we're taking notes today, you might write down these four words and God remembered and put your name in the blank as a way to claim the truth that God knows what you're going through. God sees what you're battling. God knows how difficult it is. And God remembers. He remembers you. He remembered Noah. And he brought mercy and relief in the storm. Because finally, the ark stopped. And when the ark finally stopped on that mountain, it was no longer free floating through the rising water. When it finally stopped, that moment of relief was an opportunity for Noah and his family to regroup. Because when you're in the middle of a storm and you don't feel like you can at all uh, have stability, when you don't feel at all rooted in a place, it's hard to feel like you have sense of yourself and your circumstances. It's hard to feel like you have sense of, of what's happening around you and where you are. And the relief that God gives Noah is he parks the ark and it's a time for Noah to just regroup and gather himself. And if you've been on a boat for a really long time, if you've been on a plane for a really long flight, I took a 15-hour flight a few years ago. If you've been on a road trip for hours and hours and hours, you might be struggling with what scientists call disembarkment illness. There's a a French term, but I was going to butcher it, so I went with the English translation. But disembarkment illness is a condition where the body takes much longer than normal to reset and feel at rest after it's been moving 
in some sort of vehicle, a plane, a boat, a car for a long time. If you've ever been on a cruise before, you may have gotten off that cruise and not felt stable for hours or even days. That's disembarkment illness. And some of you have been in a storm for so long that, that if things were to finally park and you get some relief and some time to regroup, it would be hard for you because you wouldn't at all feel stable because things had been shifting for so long. And in that moment, in that condition, it's very tempting to not use the time to regroup but instead to use the time to numb. In the midst of this storm, many of us are being tempted not to allow the time that God gives us as relief to use it for regrouping, but instead to use it for numbing. And I had a friend help me create a chart this week to think through this, because if God is going to give you relief and pull back on the storm a little bit and give you some peace in the midst of the storm, the question is, how are you going to use that time? Are you going to use it to relief? regroup or are you going to use it to numb? You know, when we're going through an experience and, and, and we get some relief, we often use that as an opportunity to numb and, and that becomes an undefined length of time where we just continue. It's, it's a big difference between I'm going to watch one Netflix show and then all of a sudden Netflix is reminding you, do you want to keep watching? And you're like, yes, Netflix, stop judging me, you know? That undefined time can quickly become numbing, whereas regrouping is often a defined time. I'm going to to do this for this long, and then I'm going to get back at it. Numbing is detaching from the world. It's going, okay, I I just can't do this anymore. I got to detach. And and there can be a, a helpful kind of detaching, and there can be an unhelpful kind of detaching. Regrouping is attaching to God and people, knowing that God is going to give us mercy, and he's going to bring us to help health in relationship to people and to him. Numbing involves unhealthy practices. Regrouping involves healthy practices. I think we all know those things that we turn to to make us feel better. Those are often those unhealthy practices. Numbing is escaping. Regrouping is engaging. Numbing is pretending that it never happened and trying to ignore it. Regrouping is actually processing what happened so that we can be healed. Numbing is an indulgence and regrouping is a gift for God. And I just want to encourage you today, maybe you take a picture of that uh, image or you go on our resource page at prescottcornerstone.com slash unsinkable and download a copy. You'll also see one on our Facebook page later today. Maybe you take a picture of that chart and you just use that today to reflect on Yeah, God maybe has brought some relief in the middle of my storm, but what am I using it for? Am I using it to regroup so that I can continue on in a healthy way? Or am I numbing out because I'm just overwhelmed and I'm looking to unhealthy things for what only God can give? I want to encourage you with a reminder from Paul Tripp. I used this quote in a series we did at Christmas, which seems like 10 years ago, about waiting but it feels relevant for today. Paul Tripp says, waiting isn't just about what you're hoping for at the end of the wait. It's also about who you'll become as you wait. I know a lot of us are concerned with the end of this and getting out of this, but I believe that God is also concerned with who we are becoming while we're in this. And that's why so often we feel done before God is finished because we forget God is trying to transform us in this process. 
It's right in the story of Noah. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 5, it says, The water continued to abate. It continued to die down. It continued to diminish until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So in the last part, in in verses 1 through 4, we see that in the 7th month, the, the ark stopped. God parked it. And then here we see that in the 10th month, they begin to see the tops of the mountains. And here's the the thing that will help you as you're going through this section of the storm is that hope often comes much slower than we want. Hope often comes much slower than we want. I know for some of you that that's not super hopeful. (laughs) That's not super encouraging, but it's the truth. And it's especially the truth in this story. If you have your Bible open or it's on your device, you may notice that we moved there from verse 4 to verse 5. And there's not much space between verse 4 and verse 5. They're like in the same paragraph. But in terms of time, between verse 4 and verse 5, it represents 74 days. Represents two and a half months between the time where the ark was parked on the mountain and when they could actually see any mountaintops, much less the one they were on. 74 days between, ah, okay, we're solid and secure to we can actually see any sign of ground. 74 days. Let me just remind you of the timing of this. If you've forgotten it, or this is your first Sunday with us, there was 40 days of flooding. The rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. The water surged and rose for 110 days. And during that time, the ark was free floating on the water. Then the ark is parked right here at 150 days. And then there's 74 days on the mountaintop while they were seeing nothing. It was, in fact, over 220 days without an end in sight. 220 days in the storm without seeing any dry land. 220 days wondering, when is this ever going to end? And it's only at day 224 or 225 that they see any of the mountaintops. They see the other side of the storm. And I have to believe that that Noah goes to his family and he's like, hey guys, we finally stopped. Awesome. Can we get out? Nope. We can't see any dry ground. And he comes back again. He's like, hey guys, this is awesome. Hey, I see the tops of mountains. And they go, so we're not going to be getting off for a long time. Yeah, we're not going to be getting off for a long time. They might be thinking about a question that you might be thinking about, which is that what happens when you receive underwhelming news in an overwhelming circumstance? What happens when you're in the middle of a storm, an overwhelming circumstance, and the hopeful, the good news that you get is super underwhelming? I'm in a storm. I've been floating for 110 days. I've been waiting to see anything for 225 days. And what I can finally see is just the tips of the tallest mountains. Yeah, that's hopeful. But it's slow hope and it's small hope. And maybe, again, we're not told what the conversation was on the ark. But maybe they were tempted 
with what many of us are tempted with today. And that's the temptation to get cynical. Many of us today are tempted to become cynical when the good news arrives and it's far more underwhelming than we anticipated. When hope shows up, but it's not nearly as strong or big or fast as we would like it to be. And many of us become cynical. You know, I'm a recovering cynic. I've I've shared some stories here about my own journey with cynicism. And I didn't become a cynic because I just was this negative, angry person. I became a cynic because I was an optimist who was expecting the best. And when the good news arrived, it wasn't nearly as good as I expected. One writer, when talking about cynicism, has said that you don't become a cynic because you don't have hope. You become a cynic because you do. And that hope doesn't turn out the way that you want. And cynicism is almost like a bandage or a Band-Aid to cover over a wound. It's a way of protecting ourselves. And that's why for me, there was a certain season where I think I needed to be cynical because I was way too idealistic and not living in reality. The only problem was, is when that cynicism moved from days to weeks and months and years, it was no longer about protecting a wound. It was about making sure that I never got hurt again. It's about making sure that I never got disappointed again. It was about making sure that nobody ever got into that deep of a place in my heart to hurt me ever again like that. And that's why many writers have described cynicism as a shield. One writer describes it as a 10-ton shield. That is a heavy burden for us to carry around, but we tell ourselves it's the only way to stay safe. And maybe this week, some of you here in Arizona, if you're watching in Arizona, were expecting a different kind of announcement and you experienced disappointment. And the temptation is to become cynical. The temptation is to put up a wall and say, I'm never going to hope again. I'm never going to believe again. I'm never going to trust again. Maybe the storm you're in right now is a relationship storm. Maybe somebody hurt you. Maybe somebody betrayed you. Maybe somebody abandoned you. And the temptation is I'm going to become cynical and I'm never going to let anybody in that close again so that I never get hurt again. And the problem is, is if nobody gets in that close, you'll never get hurt, but you'll never be loved. That touch makes it possible for you to be hurt. It's also that touch that enables you to be loved. And the flaw with this thinking is what it does is it makes my hope, your hope, equal to our circumstance. It makes our hope completely defined by our circumstance rather than having a hope that is greater than our circumstance. And the life of Noah reminds us that, yeah, I might only be able to see the tips of the mountains, but my hope is not based upon what I can see. My faith in God is not based upon my circumstance. It's based on something greater. And one of the best stories for me that embodies the idea of holding on to hope, even when your circumstances don't give you a reason to, or even in the face of circumstances where hope comes a lot slower than you might like, is this man. His name is Jim Stockdale. He was an admiral during the uh, Vietnam War. He was, in fact, the highest ranking prisoner in the Vietnam prisoner of war camps. He was actually in the same camp that John McCain famously was in, the Hanoi Hilton. 
And he was there for eight years. He was beaten and interrogated 20 different times. And he emerged from that time and went on to have an incredible career. Several years ago, in writing a book called Good to Great, the author, Jim Collins, interviewed Stockdale, and he talked to him about the people who did not survive as well as he did in the prisoner of war camp. And he said, the people who did not survive well in the camp were optimists. And Collins said, optimists? Shouldn't you be an optimist? He goes, not in that sense. He goes, the people who died or the people who lost hope or the people who made the ultimate bad decision in the camp were those who said, hey, we're going to get out by Christmas, and then Christmas didn't happen. We're going to get out by Easter, and then Easter didn't happen. We're going to get out by Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving didn't happen, and then it was Christmas again. And he said they died of a broken heart. They got discouraged, and they gave up. And he said what we had to learn to do was to never lose hope in the final outcome that we were going to get free, but never stop living in the reality of what we were facing. And he came up with some incredible ways to help his fellow prisoners of war hold on to hope while facing reality. And so Collins, in writing his book, ended up naming this the Stockdale Paradox. He said, you must retain faith that you will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties. That's the hopeful part. And you must confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. That's the honesty part. And when we are going through a storm and we're feeling done before God is finished and our hope is coming much slower and in much more underwhelming ways than we anticipate, we need to hold on to the faith that you know what? This storm will not last forever. We will make it through. We will prevail. And... We must confront the reality of what we're facing head on and admit it with honesty. We need an honest kind of hope when our idealistic, optimistic kind of hope doesn't match the reality. You got to hold on to hope and faith that in the end you're going to prevail, but then you got to confront the reality that you're facing. And it's in this place in the storm, it's in this season of what we're going through that I think maybe we're in the most dangerous position of all. And that's why I want to encourage you to turn to the opposite end of the Bible right now, to 1 Peter chapter 5. I stumbled back on a text this week in 1 Peter chapter 5 that God used in my life a couple years ago. And I'm going to read it to you in a second from the Christian Standard Bible, different than the English Standard Version I've been reading from this morning. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, go to the back, that's Revelation, and then go towards the front, three or four books, and you'll hit First Peter. And in First Peter 5, he talks about the experience that we are all in right now, the storm, the struggle we are all in, and what we should know. And I think this is very relevant and specific to where many of us are mentally and emotionally today. So I just want to add this in to the stuff about Noah. In 1 Peter 5, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. That's, in essence, what I think a lot of us are experiencing right now. We have been humbled because of COVID-19. Many of us had plans 
we thought we were in charge of. We had things that we thought we were in control of, and we realized that we're not in charge of as much as we thought, and we're not in control as much as we thought. And so as a result, what we've done is we've casted our cares. We've given God our anxieties. We've prayed to him and sought him in ways we haven't before. We've surrendered to him at new levels. And many of us have experienced in this time a humbling and a surrender, and that's good. But pay attention to what Peter says next. He says, but be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The third thing you need to know to get ready for this moment when you're done, but God's not finished, is that spiritual attacks often follow a great act of God. Noah's like, awesome, we are finally stopped moving. Noah's like, awesome, we are finally seeing the tips of the mountains. And it's in that place that he's vulnerable. Some of you have had an incredible time growing closer to God as he humbled you and as you surrendered to him. And in that position, I want to warn you, you may not realize it, but you could be in the middle of a trap. Pull up, old crap, pull up. Take a piece of action. Green food, stick close to holding sector and each other. To quote our friend, Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. I'm sorry, I just read that passage and it reminded me of Star Wars. Had to have a little Star Wars moment. My kids and I are in the middle of a Star Wars phase uh, right now. And so that, that phrase, it's a trap, really summarizes what Peter is saying there in 1 Peter 5. Hey, you've experienced this humbling. You're casting your cares. But don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Be sober. Be alert. Expect that in the midst of a great thing that God is doing, you may experience an unprecedented attack. Why? Because Satan is opposed to humility and surrender. So if in this season, what God is doing is he's bringing humility in your life. He's bringing surrender in your life. You are just in the position to also experience an attack from your enemy, Satan. Why? Peter says, because he's prowling around looking for someone to devour. He's looking for you to be overconfident. He's looking for you to be vulnerable. He's looking for you to not be on alert. And for many of you who've experienced a a quickening, a closening, a, a drawing together in your relationship with God, what you need to know is that Satan opposes that. And so you might, in the midst of this, when you feel like you're through the hardest part, you might experience a massive wave come and knock you down. You might experience a level of opposition or discouragement or attack that you didn't expect before. You may have come through a deep, deep darkness, feel like you're through, and then a wave hits you and you end up in a darker place than you were to start. And I just believe that there's some of you who are watching right now that you thought you were through the hardest and then a wave hit you. You thought you were secure and good and then a wave hit you. And that's where I think Noah felt like when he finally was stopped and it took 74 more days for him to see any land. See, what would have happened 
if Noah had given up 220 days into his quarantine on the ark. If you're tired of being quarantined at home, just think about Noah. He's been in there for 220 days. Friends, he is far from done. What would have happened if he just said, hey, I'm done. I'm giving up. You might go, Scott, how could he have given up? Where would he have gone? What would he have done? We could have made a very permanent decision based upon some temporary feelings. If there are kids watching with parents right now, I just want to encourage you parents, you might not have your kids step out of the room for a couple minutes right here. Because I want to speak to something I think is not spoken of enough, but is a very real reality during this time. There's some of you that are struggling with some very dark thoughts and some very permanent choices. And this season has pushed you to a place that maybe you never thought you'd be. Or maybe you once were, but you haven't been in a long time. Maybe you're struggling with making a permanent decision. We know there's people in our community, even here in Yavapai County in Northern Arizona, who've chosen to take their lives during this time because they were so overwhelmed. And if that's you, this is for you. This message is for you. This time is for you. And we're for you. And if you're struggling right now and you're in a dark place, then I want to encourage you to reach out right now. I want you to pull your phone out and send a text to 928-288-5490. Just put the word help in there. We have members of our team that are ready, manning that number, and they'd love to come alongside you. They'd love to support you. They'd love to encourage you. You're not alone. It's okay to be in a dark place. It's okay to struggle, but you don't have to do it alone. And we would love to come alongside you and we would encourage you that there is hope. You have to do this by yourself. That passage from 1 Peter 5 ends with some tremendous hope. Peter says these words. He says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. The fourth thing that I think you need to know to get ready for a moment like this, if it hasn't already happened for you, is that God's promises sustain us while we suffer. God's promises sustain us while we suffer. God doesn't promise that people who follow him, people who put their hope in him will never suffer. In fact, if the most perfect person, God in flesh, Jesus, experienced the height of suffering in the crucifixion, none of us are going to escape suffering. But God's promises sustain us. They carry us. They help us endure while we suffer. And one of the promises here is that the God of all grace will himself, these four words are powerful, restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. What God is going to do on the other side of this storm is he's going to restore you. He's going to establish you. He's going to strengthen you. And he's going to support you. That's what this passage promises us, that God will do. But that isn't the full story. It says he will do these things after you have suffered. Suffering is going to be an inevitable part of our life. We're going to go through storms. And friends, the storm that we're in right now with COVID-19, the storm you may be in right now with your family or your relationships or in some area of your life is not the final storm you will go through. 
So why not learn in this storm how to navigate the future storms? Why not learn in this storm to depend on and trust in God's promises? Because this storm will not last forever. He says, after you have suffered a little while. Now, I don't know how long the storm that you're in right now is going to last. I don't know how long this COVID-19 storm is going to last. Often in my life, I will tell you that what feels like a little while to God feels like a long heck of a while to me. I don't know how long this little while is in days, weeks, months, and years. But what I do know is that the promise that God makes us here is a promise that he will keep because with God, a promise made is a promise kept. Kids, you've been making arcs as part of this series and you've sent us some amazing photos. I want to encourage you this week to find that arc that you made. If you haven't already destroyed it and turned it into a spaceship, I'd encourage you to take that ark and write a promise of God on it. Maybe a promise from this passage. Maybe a promise from the the passage from Genesis 8. Maybe a, a promise from Robin Kaufman's Heart of God chart that we posted on our website last week. But to find a promise of God and to name it, to write it somewhere where you can see it, and to come back to it again and again to sustain you. Because God's promises sustain us while we are in the midst of the storm, while we are suffering. We don't experience those promises because if it, if it was experienced, it wouldn't be a promise anymore. It'd be something that God had done. But we trust in and depend on those promises when we're in the middle of the storm. Because we're going to have moments when we're done before God's finished. I want to encourage you to take some next steps today with me. And they're in the back of your hand that if you're following along from home. The first one is I want to encourage you to regroup in a healthy way. When you're going through a storm, there are going to be times where God gives you relief. There are going to be days that are better than others, weeks that are better than others. Use that time to regroup in a healthy way because the storm's not done. You say, Scott, how do I know it's a healthy way? Well, use this chart. Take a picture of it right now on your screen where you're watching this and and ask yourself, am I numbing, which is not healthy, or am I regrouping, which is healthy? We all need a break. That's what relief is for. Those times of relief are breaks, but they are intended to move us towards health and not away from it. Number two, I want to encourage you to retell the story of God's faithfulness in your life. Retell the story, retell the story, retell the story. All throughout the scriptures, we are called to remember what God has done and retell the story of what God has done. Is that because God has forgotten? No, we're not telling those stories for God. We're telling them for ourselves, for our benefit, not God's, because we're forgetful. In Psalm 103, the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He forgives your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. The God who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. You need to retell that story and no one should be a better storyteller about your story than you. No one should know your story better than you. No one should should be able to retell the story of God's faithfulness like you. And if you say, Scott, I don't feel good at telling my story. We have some more help for you. On that resource page at prescottcornerstone.com slash unsinkable, we have a new resource. It's called My Storm Story. And it walks you through the idea of the, the storm you're going through becoming a great story. And it gives you some prompts to think through about how you can create that. When this is all said and done, it's going to be a great story. We're going to tell the story of what happened in the spring of 2020 in the future. 
But while we're going through this story, we need to retell the stories from the past that encourage us in this moment. And parents, I want to speak to you. You may have more opportunity right now in this season while your family is at home to tell your story in ways you never have before. Do your kids know the story of how God has been faithful to you? How he's been faithful to your family before they were even born? Our kids, we're telling them the story, our twins, of how we almost lost them and how my wife was on 18 weeks of bed rest. We've told them that story. We're going to continue to tell them that story. Why? Because that's how God was faithful to us in that season. And it helps us to depend on him and his faithfulness in this season. And then finally, third next step, I want to encourage you to allow the storm to refine you rather than define you. Allow the storm to refine your faith rather than allowing the storm to define your faith. You say, Scott, what's the difference between those two terms? I know they rhyme, but what's the difference? Well, well, seeing the storm through the lens of God's faithfulness is refining faith. When you go, I'm going to look at what's happening to me through the lens of who God is, his faithfulness, that will refine, purify, clarify, strengthen your faith. But... When you see God's faithfulness through the lens of your storm, when you define whether God's faithfulness or not based upon how you are experiencing him in the moment, that will begin to define your faith, I believe, in some unhealthy ways. Here's the hope that refining faith brings. Romans 5, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. When we put our hope in the one who promises us that he's going to restore us, establish us, strengthen us, and support us after we have suffered a little while, In the process, he's going to transform us. And in the process, our hope is not going to be put to shame. And so if today you're feeling done, even though God isn't finished, I want to encourage you. Don't give up. And watch for how God is at work. Allow him to refresh you and to renew you as you regroup. But even if the storm isn't done yet, The hope is that God is also not done yet either. And that's where our hope lies. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are with us in the midst of our storm. We thank you for the the promise that you remember us and that you bring mercy. God, I believe there's some people watching right now who the storm they're in has taken them to a place mentally, emotionally, spiritually they never thought they'd be in. And they're in a dark place. They're discouraged. And I just would pray that today, whether through the word of a friend, whether through the remembering of of you working in their life in the past, or even this hour we've spent together in this service, that you would strengthen them with hope. God, we all have good days and bad days. We all have places where we feel more hopeful than others. But when we put our hope in you, God, We're putting our hope in a place where we want to be put to shame. So help us to be honest, but help us to also be hopeful. And help us to find our strength in you in these times where we feel weak. And remind us, God, that we're not in this storm alone. In your name we pray. Amen.